right. Good morning, church. We ready for this? Are we awake? You guys have your coffee, your tea. Uh, little little tip with the masks. Uh, a CDC for Boulder says as long as you're eating and drinking, you don't have to have it on. So if you just kind of eat and drink the whole sermon, then you're good to go. So, uh, I, and I use eat and drink loosely, so don't over don't overdo that. Um, but yeah, as long as you're drinking coffee, eating something, then pop that thing down. Another little trick is every now and then, oops, it accidentally slides under your nose. Um, it happens, just saying. So anyways, just trying to help you navigate this. We've made it a little bit cooler in here because I know it can get a little bit hot under the mask. We're, we're doing whatever we can to kind of help you um, with that. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, would you please uh, open them to the book of Second Peter? Uh, Second Peter is in the second half of the Bible area called the New Testament. We're going to be in this book for the next eight weeks as we unpack it uh, in extreme detail. And I hope that you're going to make, uh, and please hear me on this, I really do hope that you'll make an effort to bring your Bible to church. Uh, I know a lot of people love to use the electronic version. That's wonderful. Um, but when you're studying, when you're taking notes, when you're digging in deeper, uh, this is just my opinion, and, and I'm preaching so I can say it, uh, it's not as effective on the electronic. It is much more effective to have it laid open in your lap, grab a pen, grab a pencil, uh, underline, highlight, draw arrows, have a journal with you. I really do hope that you'll take advantage of this because this book literally has uh, the opportunity to change you in a, in a significant way. And unless you have a brilliant memory, you're going to forget it tomorrow. Uh, you're going to forget it next week, et cetera. So please, please, please bring your Bibles, bring a journal, grab a pen. But also, uh, if you don't, that's fine. Uh, we have Bibles in all the seats uh, that you can grab one of those and, and at least have it open as we look at the book of Second Peter. Now, the environment that we find Peter writing to uh, the church throughout Asia Minor, uh, in fact, uh, Interestingly enough, at the heart of COVID, when we first got going, if you remember and you were around here, we unpacked the book of First Peter. Uh, and we had this scheduled way long in advance when things were looking up and everything was looking grand. Uh, and here we are again, COVID's flaring up and the Lord has us in Second Peter. So his plans are better than our plans. Uh, and I think he speaks to that in a lot of different ways. But the environment that we find Second Peter writing is one of false teaching. That's gonna be the predominant area that Peter is addressing, the false teaching that's going on. Primarily, those individuals that are going around trying trying to dissuade people and spreading false doctrine regarding the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're trying to sway. In fact, they're trying to take somewhat truth, twist it, and then deny that Jesus is going to come, uh, come back. And as a result of that, as a result of that kind of teaching, what's happening is there's sort of a, uh, a, a moral carelessness uh, a looseness, if you would, that's beginning to kind of creep around the culture, and it's actually beginning to permeate into the church. And so Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter wants to get a handle on this, and so he's addressing the church in regards to this teaching. So most will say this letter is written kind of in the mid-60s after the death of Jesus. Yeah, most scholars will say between like 64 and 66. We don't know exactly. Just before 
Peter is put to death, presumably under uh, the uh, evil rule of the emperor Nero. And so that's where we find ourselves uh, as Peter is writing this. So I'm going to invite you to stand uh, as we read. We'll do this for every single week as we read through 2 Peter. Uh, we, we stand not out of ritual, uh, not out of up, down, up, down, up, down. We stand out of respect. We stand out of awe. We stand out of reverence for the word of God uh, from the mouth of God. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. So a few things as we get ready to start. Notice in verse one, Peter emphasizes relationship servant, or, or your version might say slave, he, he emphasizes relationship with God before rank, that is apostle. Now that's a really good example for us to not take ourselves too seriously. We might be in a position of, of, of leadership, a position of power, uh, we might be a parent, whatever it is, Peter makes sure that he emphasizes, I'm a servant first, and I'm lucky to be called apostle. Why is that important? Because Peter knows who this is. This is Simon Peter. This is Peter who says, I can do it even when he can't. This is Simon Peter who, who says, I'll step out of the boat onto the water and then is engulfed by the waves when he drops his eyes. This is Peter who says, I will never, never, never deny you and then gets out of Dodge the moment things begin to heat up. This is Peter who pulls a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane to fight when it was peace that Jesus wanted. This is Peter who leaves Jesus all alone. This is Simon Peter whose name, we might think it means the rock, it doesn't. That's the name Jesus gave him. But his name means shaky. His name literally means shaky, that God chose. He didn't walk around going, okay, who's, whose name means strength? Whose name means power? Whose name means they're all that and then some? Nope, I'll go with shaky. That's what Jesus did. And he picked someone whose name means shaky to build the church. Also notice in contrast to several biblical letters that are written by the authors, they tend at the very beginning to address an, a problem. And that's what kind of binds them together with the listeners, not Peter here. The foundation and what pulls the writer and the receivers of this particular letter is a shared faith. 
Even though there's a lot of stuff going on, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of bad teaching, there's a lot of heresy being delivered, he doesn't start with that. He starts with, we have a unified faith. Here's the first thing I want you to highlight, if you would, in your Bibles, uh, in chapter, two, uh, chapter one, verse one, I want you to highlight the phrase or underline the phrase to you, or your version might say, to those. And then that's followed with an explanatory clause, which says, who through the righteousness. I want you to highlight both of those. This is gonna be incredibly important. I, I just wanna give you a preface as we jump into this. Uh, if, if you, like me, I'm just being honest, especially when Alex preaches, I'm just kidding. I, I'm, well, I love when Alex preaches. But if you, if you tend to tune out uh, and you come back like two or three minutes later, you're gonna be like, where the heck are we? Uh, that's what this series is. We're gonna move very quickly. It's gonna be very, very meaty. And so when we highlight things, we're gonna come back to those very, very often. So to you or to those, and then the explanatory clause, who through the righteousness, or your version might say, through the justice and the fairness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this phrase in verse one is directly related to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that's going to be important. You're gonna to wanna to write that word down or that phrase, it's on the screen, it's also on your television or your computers at home or you can just merely take a picture, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're gonna come back to that. Now before we begin to unpack verses one through four, I'm gonna invite you Throw your thumb or a piece of paper or your ribbon in 2 Peter and now go to the left of just a few blocks to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to come back to Peter so he doesn't feel bad, but I want us to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 so that I can explain myself in regards to this imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we're not lost in that. Because if we don't really understand the imputed righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, then when we read 2 Peter, we're not going to pick up what he's putting down. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter five. Now, before we unpack that, it's important to know that the New Testament constantly uses different words, different ways, different phrases for helping us understand the way that God and man are brought together, okay? Now, as we do that, we see that Paul in 2 Corinthians and other places speaks in terms of justification, and in here, in 2 Corinthians 5, in terms of reconciliation. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ay, 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 where are we? Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to encourage you at home, jot this down, read the entire chapter. For time's sake, we're going to just focus on verses 16 through 21, and I'll read it for us. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us, he has given to us, he has assigned us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. 
as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now stay with me in 2 Corinthians 5. Now why would man and woman need to be reconciled to God? And the answer, very simply, but comes with a lot of baggage and truth, is that they are both alienated from the nature of God. That's an important distinction. Basically, what I'm explaining to you this morning is, why do you even have faith? What does your faith even mean? Because if you're like me in the past where someone said, hey, explain your faith, I was limited to, well, I prayed the prayer, Jesus, come into my heart, be my Lord and Savior, forgive me of my sins, amen. And beyond that, I couldn't really explain my faith. This is important for us to realize that we are alienated from the nature of God. What does that look like? Well, you might have noticed occasionally, both men, women, and children, we don't feel right. You might be sitting here to go, today going, amen, I really don't feel right. My back hurts, my knees hurt, my ankles hurt, everything hurts, okay? Occasionally, men, women, and children, we don't feel right. We don't feel right socially, sexually, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, professionally, and the list goes on, and the reality is that all of these things, and we could go on, we could list more of those things, are all the fruit of someone who's other than us. Remember, we're alienated from that one. And because of our sin and our sin nature that we're born with, we are completely separated from him. There is this giant gulf between us. And so because of that, we are alienated from him. So the question becomes, well, how are we supposed to bridge that gap? And the answer, of course, is we cannot. We cannot bridge that gap. So unless God provides a means for that reconciliation, it means that we have absolutely no hope of accomplishing that task. We're left to our doom and our gloom. What then are the marks of a, of a life that is alienated from God? What does that look like? Well, luckily, the Bible tells us. It tells us what a life with God looks like, and it tells us what a life just staying alienated from him looks like. Look at verse 12. It says that we, what? Commend ourselves. In other words, these are the ones who, when asked, why would God want you? They respond by going, I'm a pretty good person. I do really good things. I take up social causes left and right. In fact, I'm not as, as bad as Mr. Jones down the street. You seen that guy? Or I'm not as bad as her. Or hey, if you compare me, like God obviously looks at me favorably because look at who I am. And so a life that is alienated is ones who try to then go on and do their best and go on and do good deeds. They commend themselves. And that desire, 
that prompting to want to put on a good face in front of everyone else to save your own face is a description of a life that is an indication that that individual is alienated from God. In addition, we see in verse 15 that those who are alienated for God live for who? Themselves. Those who are alienated for God, they just live for me. Me, me, me. My, my, my. I, I, I. My opinion, my desires, my agenda, my schedule, my money. Me, 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 me. That is a life alienated from God. Those who carry with them every day their personal agendas. Tip. If you start feeling like throughout the day you're carrying an agenda, stop. Give that to the Lord and ask for his agenda. And none of us, let's make sure we're all in the same boat here, none of us are free from not falling into that uh, muddy water. But we all, through Christ, can address it. And then in verse 16, it tells us that the regard for God is what? Worldly. You can participate. No one's going to like tell you to stop talking. And this takes on the appearance of viewing Jesus not as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but viewing Jesus as a pretty darn good teacher, an incredible example, a remarkable rabbi, someone who, who has phenomenal wisdom, but certainly not as Lord and absolutely not as one worthy of kneeling before in complete submission. So why did they view Jesus this way? Let me even double down on that question. Why do people today still view Jesus this way? And it's because they're alienated from God. And thus the essence of the gospel be reconciled to God. Now, you might ask, if we're unable to accomplish this task, how has God provided the provisions for such reconciliation? And our answer, in part, we find in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become, this is important, highlight this in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians 5, the righteousness of God. This is going to come back to bite us in a really, really good way. Because if we go then back up to verse 19, we see that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. This is important, not counting men's sins against them. There's two very crucial words in this passage. Again, to help you understand your faith. Those two words uh, give the connotation. He is not counting. It doesn't say he's not counting men's sins. Oh, he's counting. It says he's not counting sins, and these are the two words, against them. And the natural question becomes... Well, who then is he counting the sins against? For sin had to be dealt with once and for all. We know this. A penalty had to be paid. Uh, there was a bill. The bill had to be paid. A price had to be paid. Those prisoners had to be acquitted. 
All of this, everything we're talking about, rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That on the cross, God was not counting sins against man and woman, but directed all of his justice, all of his judgment, all of his wrath to his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And the call to experience reconciliation is a call to experience this life-changing that scholars will describe the great switch or the great escape. The switching of places with Jesus and the experience of being reconciled to the God of all creation, to the person of Jesus Christ, literally changes everything. Are you with me so far? Not if you are, helps. Can't see your mouths. Back to verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, because you and I have been reconciled to God, it changes the way that we view those who are not. It changes the way we view family members who are not. It changes the way we view an entire stadium. I, I, I watched the Ohio State football game yesterday. Just fans alone, 100,487 in the stadium. It changes the way we view that. It changes the way we view people as we're at school. It, it changes the way we interact with people at the grocery store. It changes the way we see because we should not view them from a worldly point of view. The Bible says we used to do that. We view them as ones who are in need of great reconciliation. Thus compassion. Thus mercy. Because it's really easy. Friends, this is so important because if we don't have this perspective, then we get ticked off at the world. We get irritated with family members. We, we don't like family members. We avoid family members or coworkers or neighbors or, or our politicians on the screen. But if we do have this perspective, it changes things. Now, with all of that said, I want you to flip back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because all of what we just talked about is in verse 1a. All of that. But if we don't have that context, then 2 Peter chapter 2 verse, or 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, it doesn't make full sense. Sorry, my video today, I got 2 Peter and 1 Peter, uh, the, the video I sent you all this week, I kept inter-switching them. I'm so still in the mode of our 1 Peter series, so I'm still reminding myself it's 2 Peter. Anyway, let's keep going. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, through the righteousness, here's that word again, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, what happens? You have received a faith as precious as ours. All of this, all of what we've been talking about for the past several minutes, on account of God making Jesus sin for me. 
sin for you and making me and making you a beneficiary of his righteousness. It's like win the lottery. Or you find that you have a, a, an uncle that you never heard of that's a billionaire and you are left in inheritance. You're a beneficiary of this. And in the understanding of that, in wrapping our minds around that and understanding it upon the staking of our entire lives upon that truth is the discovery of what Peter refers to as a very precious faith. It's just so cool. And I must ask you this morning, is this a faith you know? If someone asked you about your faith, would you be able to describe how and why it is so precious? Starting at least in part, I was once alienated from God, but no longer. I once viewed the world in this way, but no longer. I've been reconciled to the death of his son that God was not counting my sins against me. Sometimes we can think that on Calvary, when Jesus hung on the cross, that he was looking at Jesus and he was like, doggone Diane Montaneri, and his wrath was on Diane or me. Or you. And we go, man, I, I must have made God so angry that day that Jesus died on the cross. No, you didn't. He took all of his wrath, all of his judgment, and threw it on Jesus. He received God's wrath. Could you explain that he wasn't counting sins against you, but also that God even created your faith? That you didn't create it? Not one of you, none of us online, none of us created the faith, it's God's doing. He initiated it, he built it of no doing of my own, but purely out of his grace and mercy. That's what causes Peter to say, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. I just happen to be an apostle. And I think Peter often probably looked in the mirror, as I often do, and go, really? You really called this? And to this day, I do that, friends. Because I am no better than you. I am pursuing Jesus with everything in me. I fall down, I pick myself up. I reach out to others for accountability. I confess sin. I struggle. I have bad attitudes. But we are on this journey together. And this idea should ground us a little bit. So in the face of false teaching, uh, what Asia Minor is dealing with, as Peter writes, what is it that this precious faith even provides? 
And, and let me make it even more personal. What does this precious faith provide you? As COVID jumps up and political unrest is happening and who knows what's gonna happen later on this afternoon or next week or next month, it, presumably it's just gonna keep getting worse. So what does our precious faith provide us? What did it provide them? Well, in verse two, we clearly see that we receive grace and peace. That's what our faith provides us, grace and peace. And the order is important with these two, perhaps cause and effect. I want you to look uh, again, throw your thumb wherever and turn to Romans chapter five, verse one. If you can't turn there, it'll be on the screen. You can take a picture and go back to it later. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say we have peace. It says we have peace because of God. You see, the doctrine of justification provides the proof of our standing before God. Not on the basis, hear me on this, of all ages, not on the basis of what you did or did not do today. Not on the basis of how good you were. Not on the basis of how holy and pure you were. Not on the basis of, hey, I'm reading through the Bible in a year and I served here and I did this. Not on any of those bases. But what a God has done through the person and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And this peace and this grace comes, and I've had to learn this, not by turning off the news, which I've done, and I still don't have peace. Not by going for a walk and looking at the beauty, which I've tried. Not by sitting uh, and listening to my records at home, I've tried. Not by getting a self-help book, not by sitting Indian style if you're still able to do such a feat and, and having this quiet mantra. It doesn't come with any of that. It comes through the majesty of Jesus Christ. That's where peace is found. And our world today is desperately trying to find peace unearthing every rock they can find, looking behind every corner. Where's peace? Where's peace? Where's peace? Peace is only found in the person and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Amen? And Peter is saying, now here's where it becomes very practical. Peter is saying, I know you dear friends are going through a rough time. I know you're under great persecution. I know that there's all of these heretical false teachings by individuals happening all around you and you're confused. But listen, dear friends, and Peter would say the same thing to you and I today. You have the same faith of the righteousness of God. It's yours to be had. And I want you to know, he goes on to verses three and four, that God's divine power, the Greek word dunamis, dynamite, God's ultimate power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, has literally given us everything we need for a life and godliness. You've got it all at your fingertips. Now, you may not tap into it, 
but everything you need is available. And that means all of the necessary ingredients to live a godly life is grounded in our relationship with him. And that relationship with him, at least in part, begins with knowledge of him. Why is that important? Because he is the one that initiated the relationship with you and I. It was not based on, on something good. Um, he didn't look at Ken Russo and go, man, that guy's got great potential. Great hair, uh, great athletic skill, great taste in a wife. Like, I'm gonna save him because I can really use him. God did not look around at what he could choose and go, mm, you're good, you're good, you're good. Ooh, I could use her in Sunday school. Uh, let's see, missions, awesome, that one. He didn't see good in us. He didn't see potential in us. But rather, he saw something unworldly pure that could only be found in Jesus. You see, these dear brothers and sisters throughout the church were surrounded by great people of power. They had a great ability to use eloquent words and great teachings. They were also people with unbelievable skills in persecution. They knew how to make death a game, sawing people in half alive, cutting them partly apart and putting them on stakes for gain. These, this is the power that surrounded the church, and they're afraid and they're confused and they're being tossed, and they're being turned. And these followers needed to be reminded of the divine power that lies within. And friends, maybe you need to have that reminder today. I don't know what's going on in all your lives. But maybe you need to be reminded of that power, that regardless of what's going on in your life, you have the power to live a godly life life, no matter what life throws at you, you have that power. And you have this because it's his divine power. You remember Christmas? Remember what the worst Christmas gift was when you were growing up? Okay, underwear, yes. That is brutal, by the way. Please don't. Please don't get your kids underwear. Like, that is just such a great cop-out, unless it's a gag gift. Underwear, certainly. For me, it was when I opened this unbelievable gift, and it didn't come with its own batteries. And it's Christmas morning, and everywhere is closed. For me, it was the Millennial Falcon. When Star Wars was in the theaters, great millennial falcon that if you put batteries in, it could make all these sounds and lights, and I had no power. Just a piece of plastic. My frustration level as a young child. And maybe it's different. Maybe, maybe yours was uh, something else, a, a remote control car or a remote control something, whatever it is. But you have this unbelievable gift without any power to utilize it. It's just sitting there. And that's the religious experience for many people today. 
They perceive to have all the right answers that check all the right boxes. And it makes them feel very, very good inside. And it makes them feel better about what they're gonna do today and what they're gonna do tomorrow. But they are living life without charging power. That is not who we are. We are not without power. God's reconciliation that Peter refers to so quickly is so in-depth that it gives us his great and precious promises. Those promises that the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all receive all of these precious promises. Everything that God says that is true will receive their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And these promises give us two incredible results because he said yes from this passage. We get to participate in the divine nature of God. It doesn't mean we get to share in his divinity. Don't get me wrong. But we get to share in his divine nature. How do we do that? He imparts in us his heart, his character. I'll give you an example of that. When we were at Sweet Naya's uh, prayer vigil uh, a couple weeks ago, we're praying for Naya, we're praying for Naya, we're worshiping, and my youngest, Max, comes up. And he can't stop crying. And I'm like, buddy, what's wrong? And he can't speak, he's just shaking his head. I'm like, buddy, what's going on? And he's like, I don't know, I just feel something. And I said, Max, God's letting your heart break for what breaks his. He's letting you crumble for the sweet girl. And he's prompting you to pray like God is giving you his divine nature. Because as sinners, our hearts shouldn't break for that. But when God turns us back to him, our hearts do break for those things that break his heart. Our hearts rejoice for the things that rejoice with his heart. So that's the first thing. But the second thing, the Bible is clear. And man, I've been camping out on this all week. We get to escape the corruption of the world. <laughs> Anybody else want to go with me? But it's not in Hawaii. It's not in Barbados. It's not in Cancun, it's not in Fiji. Although I'm sure those would help. The only way that we can escape the world, the corruption that we see on a regular basis and we just wanna get away from it all is not by running from it, it's by staying in Jesus. In other words, because of our union with Christ, we get to be partakers of the kingdom of God. That is so much better than being partakers of anything this world can offer us. And the promises, in part, are once you were alienated from God. You were. You viewed Christ according to a worldly view. 
and you viewed yourself as something really special. I know some of you are, but you hear what I'm saying. And you viewed others the wrong way. And Peter says, all of that is changed. And this causes us to no longer hold a husband, a wife, a child, a teacher, a coworker, a roommate, a neighbor, even politicians to such unattainable standards because we know we ourselves are in great need. And instead of, I just want to give you an encouragement, instead of resting in your blessed assurance of I get to go to heaven someday, which is good to do, maybe this week and through this series, may maybe take moments and allow yourself to be engulfed in, saturated with, and, and to rest upon grace. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited grace. For without that reconciliation, I can never be, you can never be, the friend, the neighbor, the husband, the wife that God always intended you to be because you'll remain alienated. So Peter says, and I'll say also, without this mindset, without this worldview, you'll never be able to endure false teaching and the corruption of the world. So as Paul did, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, I can't thank you enough for your scriptures. Throughout this week, they've been my life raft. They've been my hope. They've been my comfort saying goodbye to Naya. They have literally held me up so that I would not sink under the water. And the reminder of what my faith is and why it's precious and the grace and the peace that comes as a result of it cannot be stated enough. And so we read even in chapter one, verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth. I think it is right to refresh your memory for as long as I live in this tent, as long as I live in this body today, because I know soon it will be put aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So in response of this, Jesus, we worship you. Why? Because you're the only one worthy of worship. And so we submit ourselves humbly before you with a clear understanding, at least in part this morning, of what our faith is, why it's important, why it is so precious. And we have all of that because of you. And we love you. We pray these things in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand?